you've been on the bright side today. I think not having any work beyond your work, this Pro Tools class has been really good for your spirit. And I also have one of my oldest friends in town for a little visit. Scott Working is yep. here. So shout out to Scott Working. That makes me feel a little bit more buoyant. Good. Yeah. Good. What have y'all been up to? You've been putting them to work like you put your dad and everybody else to work. We put up some crown molding <laughs> in the when kitchen. They, when they come and visit you. Yeah. See, if you visit Scott, you have to work. Hello, no. everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, we've been just having a lot of conversation. You know, just catching up. How we long? don't we don't have to do things. We just we can just sit and be in each other's company and it's great. How long have y'all known each other? Since nineteen eighty eight. Oh wow. So since early early adulthood, late childhood. Yep. And in nineteen ninety three it was me, Scott Working, Alicia Magar, and Ken Jacobs that started the Shelter Bullet Theater Company. So I mean we go we go way back. Well, Rock, shout out. Rocks were soft. Yeah. Shout out to, to longtime friendships. Well, speaking of uh, early adulthood, late childhood, we kind of were passing along some children's music <laughs> videos. So I wanted, <laughs> yeah. but just to get us started today, I, wanted to re- I wanted to visit some of that. When we think about children's music, traditionally, maybe uh, classical <laughs> children's music, you know, the hey diddle diddle, the wheels on the bus, mm-hmm. you know, all all of that stuff. But over over the years, you know, since those nursery rhyme days of the late 19th century, early 20th century, music changed. Music uh, as aligned with uh, children's programming changed and mm-hmm. evolved. And it eventually started to catch on. I'm, I'm sure there's a children's music expert out there uh, somewhere to who, who can who can really tie the, uh, the bow between, okay, this is children's music. This is the so-called popular music or popular aesthetic of the time. Mm-hmm. Let's try to put those together. I, you know, I wonder when the first time that happened was, but by the 70s and early 80s, it sounded like they had figured that part out. It was right? starting to happen anyway. So when it so when it comes to children's show music, that you know you you really think about going you know your your version of lit you know in in those days what comes to mind there was there was one theme in particular that would bring people in from the other room <laughs> the, the kids would stop coming from out yeah. they, they would come from in uh, hey, from outside come indoors it was it was a jam number 1 but number 2 it starts off in the most fantastic fashion with Rita Moreno listening to here this is a theme song from the electric company and what kind of show was the electric company i've heard the name of the show i don't uh, know anything else yeah it was for the graduates of sesame street oh so when when sesame street started to feel a little bit played out to you you would graduate over to the electric company So what is it about that track in particular, that that theme show that really uh, 
inspires your memory when I say a, a children's music that spoke to the times that really was going yeah, as far as the aesthetic of the time? That was totally the aesthetic at the time, you know, sort of the, the disco band. Mm. There was a string section there, but you also had the wah pedal guitar. There was great bass, trap set. And listen to the lyrics. We're going to give you the power. Oh, my goodness. We're going to turn it on. We're going to give you the power. Inspirational before you even get into the show. They're right. telling you, listen. This is what's going to If you happen. don't hear anything else from me, <laughs> listen to this music and know that, yeah, that's, that's really great. I yeah. love that. Well, of course, things evolve and times change. I think it's safe to say, as we talk about all the time on this show, the preeminent sound of the world right now is arguably hip hop. Mm -hmm. And children's music is not uh, unaware of that. You sent me a couple tracks over the weekend on Twitter that I was sitting here, uh, sitting here at home dancing to and, and getting my life. And one in particular I've been returning to, there's a show out there called Gracie's Corner. See, I'm mm -hmm. even learning the, what the shows are. And this track called Money Song. Hey, let's learn it about goes. money. Count it up, count it up. Let's count all the money. Count it up, count it up. So first things first, you have to admit that music got a little louder. <laughs> the, the, yeah. the, 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 product, the production sounds of it really <laughs> blew it up. The fidelity is better. So we go from you have the power with the electric company to teaching the kids how to count the money. I mean, are mm. we talking about capitalism? Are we empowering them in this way? I mean, <laughs> mm. it's very interesting to think about, isn't it? I'm going to return to that later because okay. that goes. But when I think about this concept, it, 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 it's worth conversation, in my opinion, because it shows that at the foundational part of a person's life, children's music, children's programming, there are folks in those rooms and in those spaces that understand the importance of things like cultural competency about mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. knowing what's out there now, what might grab a child's attention and how you can utilize that to teach. And get your point across, sure. Different communities, I don't know, foundationalize different aesthetics of music. So again, going back to the electric company music, you said the disco band music. That theme song was reinforcing what? What was on the radio? The the episode of Soul Train that may have been coming on later that day? What, <laughs> what was the electric company reinforcing? I think that, that was just the popular music on the radio at the time mm -hmm. you know um the, it was it was you know a little bit before earth wind and fire yeah you know so there was it was a disco band there was you know probably 12 pieces and it was just as you said a sound that that was an on, eight year old would know yeah. would be familiar with that general aesthetic plus the the very positive message behind it and you know uh there's obviously soul train and american bandstand mm -hmm. were on at that point and so the artists that they would have been bringing in that that would have been the aesthetic, you know. Stevie Wonder had a huge band and was on uh, Sesame Street a couple times. It was just that was just the vibe. Yeah, yeah. So when we fast forward to you know count all the money as <laughs> as Gracie was singing there, we're reinforcing a child's world through hip hop. 
I think we're so afraid sometimes in our art sectors to really create spaces in which young people see themselves. We talk about young people's concerts. That was a big thing, you know, as an orchestral musician, the days where you have to wake up early to do the school field trip concerts, Mm -hmm. you know, we aren't really at least the ones that most of the ones I played, we aren't reinforcing what kids might be experiencing musically elsewhere. So who are we losing there? And think about the advantage that these producers have of these shows over the orchestras, over the arts institutions, because they're actually willing to dive in and practice some cultural competency. What is that style of animation that they're using for Gracie's Corners? I couldn't, I couldn't tell you. I'm not a an animator or anything, but what, why do you ask? Because I'm just wondering about how that might be tied into the education mm. of it. You know, how how you might do that animation. Because Electric Company a, was live action. So, that's right. So you think animation maybe even grabs the attention even Probably. more when you pair it with that, that hip-hop aesthetic? Probably. And I'm also thinking about uh, the number of these that you could turn out in the time that it would take you to sure. do an episode of The Electric Company. Especially back in the efficient. day with, you know, old school cameras or whatever y'all were using. Yeah, let me tell you, Sonny. <laughs> but you were a child too, so. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it reminds me of that conversation that I had uh, with the kids back at the uh, Jennings School, way back in season mm-hmm. one, where I'm, mm-hmm. when I'm asking them, well, what is your classical music? What aesthetics of music are foundational to your lived experience right now? Back then, the question didn't make, uh, not that the question didn't make sense, but I have a deeper context for that question now, especially as I'm thinking about this. When you were young, that foundational aesthetic was what you called the disco band sound. Mm-hmm. For a lot of kids today, as we heard from Gracie, that foundational aesthetic is hip hop. We have to take that phrase classical music and allow it to evolve and fit into the glass that is poured in, so to speak, just as these children's music producers seem to. That's what we're here to do, to reinforce a contemporary, culturally competent, decolonized perspective on the phrase classical music. Let's jump in. Scott Blankenship, and this is Triloquy, Opus 156. Thank you so much to everyone returning to the Triloquy podcast for another week and for your continued support. To new listeners, if this is your first time checking out the Triloquy podcast, Triloquy is a podcast built to decolonize the phrase classical music. We take the concept of classical music and we approximate it to music, to conversations, and everything else that may not have traditionally been affixed to that phrase, but ones that we think belong in the conversation. For more information on the Triloquy podcast, visit Triloquy.com. You can donate there and you can check out past opuses of the Triloquy podcast. In addition to your support, Triloquy is made possible in part by the Shuttleworth Foundation, Springboard for the Arts of St. Paul, Minnesota. And this week I want to send a special shout out to the Lakes Area Music Festival for their continued support of the Triloquy podcast and Trillworks Media. Scott, I recorded uh, the Lakes Area Music Festival pre-concert, not pre-concert, but you know, the everybody sit down announcement 
you know, welcome to the such and such concert, the, mm. you know, supported by X, Y, and Z. So the pre-concert talk. But, well, you know, literally the announcement, I should say the pre-concert announcement, mm. you know, welcome to uh, Made Possible by You, fun, uh, sponsors include X, Y, and Z. Anyway, mm. in that whole thing. Um, you know, I do the land acknowledgement and, and, you know, unwrap your cough drop now, please. Mm -hmm. And at the end of it, there's a part in the copy that I was supplied, shout out to Taylor, that uh, said, we're recording, in essence, we're, we're recording this, so we don't need y'all clapping in between movements, but you know, I'm a disruptor, so I'm not completely comfortable saying that. So I feel like Taylor had me in mind. He, what the copy he ended up sending me said, uh, we appreciate if you will hold your applause till the end of the piece, unless you just can't help it. <laughs> so that's what the audience will get to hear. They will get to hear me not having to code switch and tell them not to clap, especially at, you know what I talk about on uh, Twitter and all of that stuff. And they know that if you're gonna clap between movements, Make sure it's worth it. So I hope that in whatever uh, broadcast at uh, the Lakes Area Music Festival concerts they make it to, I hope that the performances are are so energized and engage the people so much that they couldn't help but to scream a bravo right at the end of that quiet movement, that second movement of of, mm. of whatever. But you know, there's also respect for the recording, so we're just gonna have a good time and uh, and hope that they enjoy the concert and. Like it says, if they just can't help it, they're going to clap and it's going to be fine. Are you offended by a little bit of applause and recordings that you air on the radio? Me? No. Yeah, neither no, am I. I. So it's going to be okay. Shout out to everyone attending Lakes Area Music Festival concerts. You heard it here. I'm giving you permission to clap between movements. I know what I said in that pre-concert announcement and you heard me say something else here. All right. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Let's get into movement one. All right, I have some real mess to get to here in this first movement. So let's go ahead and, and start with something more positive. What do you have for us this week? <laughs> what, 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 accidental, what accidental you got? Um, I want to give this a sharp, um, even though it seems a little bit delayed. I found this article on msnbc.com. And this, is a, uh, this came across my field of vision just today. So this is recently it's dated, come out. It's dated for today. And um, it tells the, the, the story is of Jerry Lynn Johnson. And the headline goes, she was told she didn't, quote, look like a maestro. So this conductor started her own orchestra. And that would be the Black Pearl Chamber Orchestra. She has been on Triloquy before. You can go back in the opuses and find that interview if you like. But a couple of things that I wanted to bring to the front is uh, number one, when she was auditioning for a certain conductor position, mm -hmm. she was told after the fact, hey, look, we, we really liked what you were bringing to the podium. Uh, we thought you had good rapport with the musicians. You know, the, They it, give you the good first right. before they bring the bullshit. Right. And so this, she said in the article that it sounded like this guy wanted to, to come to her and say, hey, look, I wanted to bring you on. These people over here said something different. So that's how she's kind of framing it. But the idea was, we don't know how to market you. Uh, so, right. Now, you might remember uh, at the end of last season or the beginning of this one, we were talking about programming ideas and how you make changes on the air. And I talked about how don't, 
when, when you just, when you put a new piece of music on, don't go, oh, I hope you like this. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm like, this is different. Yeah, like, no, I'm playing this. Now you need to come at it from, this is fantastic. You're yeah. going to love this. You're going to be on the cutting edge when you hear this, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. You need to promote things. So that would be my first response is promote her like you would any other conductor. Yeah. And if, yeah. And, and, and if not that, ham up the idea that you're going to bring in this bit different perspective. Right. And, and really have that conviction. Right. There's a, you know, not, not to get off the path. I, I, I will, I have something to ask you concerning what you said, but someone sent me an article that uh, was written about me over the weekend. And long story short, it talks about how um, being introduced to something new may be weird or different at first, but once you really give it a chance, you can really see its value. The article covers the two young black guys who grew up sheltered and they're listening to things for the first time and their reaction uh, video to the Phil Collins. Sure. And they, so they talk about that. And then they randomly go on to talk about when I was hosting music through the night and how, you know, this one man would turn it on to, you know, settle in and to relax himself. But I had a sort of rapport and a sort of voice that wasn't sleepy time. So, you know, right. he didn't, he hated that at first, but, but grew to uh, eventually love it. And, you know, they talk about everything else that happened. They quoted your... T- in the 15 years quote in it by the way but good anyway so uh, that's so that's cropped up again good. but but i i just i just bring that up to say sometimes we are so afraid of something being different but as you said that's that's what you sell mm-hmm. you you should get people excited about something or or someone different and obviously someone over does it name the orchestra that or, or the or the the management team that that said that she wasn't see see now we searching yeah, it's near the uh, it's near the top. Oh, it actually names it. Oh my goodness! Hold on. Let, so let me, let me get the. Uh, in two thousand five, the same year that she won some prestigious awards, she was uh, one of three finalists for a conducting job. She did not get it. And going on down through here, no, she does not name the orchestra. So please take the suspense music out there for me. <laughs> Good. Now. I don't know why MSNBC is bringing this up because she formed the Black Pearl Chamber Orchestra some time ago. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if they're maybe trying to uh, attach Jerry Lynn's comments here to perhaps voting issues or trying to get people excited about uh, going to the polls. I'm not sure. Because one of the things they quote her as saying here is uh, she decided, um, her quote is, I decided I'm going to fix this problem in ca- classical music that we have in which power is male-dominated and authenticity can apparently only be in European bodies for this art form. Um, She says, it's like we have a a piece of grit. How do you create something beautiful out of that awfulness and make it somehow better or more valuable for Mm -hmm. other people? So her idea was to take the rage that she felt at not getting that gig and for the reason that she didn't get that gig and channel that into making the Black Pearl Orchestra work because she full on says, I was not trying to start a business. Yeah. And I don't want to, I didn't want to run it, Mm -hmm. but she was looking around and not seeing it. And so she channeled that rage. And I want to, uh, I want to um, give you this last quote. Yeah. That's what I was looking at at the end of it. Yeah. Um, It's something you really believe in. Then the fear is just part of what you have to plow ahead and you gradually become less afraid. If you're learning and growing, then there's always a little bit of fear. 
I'll keep here, going. I no. love it. I can't control circumstances, but I know me and I know if I put my mind to it, I can do whatever it is that I want to do. I love that. But I love that. The actual quote that I wanted to try to find was, rage, when used properly, is like a nuclear powerhouse of energy, she said. It can power you to do all kinds of things. Mm. It got me through the paperwork and the payroll and all the things I didn't want to do to spin up a business. I'm going I'm to so, ring my bell for that. There, yeah. You know, there's there's Buddhism. In that, you know, taking that negative circumstance and and turning it into something good. But we'll, we'll return to that concept in the in the fourth movement today, okay. talking and, about rage. <laughs> but what she goes on to point out is that emotions, whether it's joy or rage, can be a source of power if you channel them. And so that's what I'm just I'm just trying to send this out. That whatever you're going through right now, I, I really hope that there's one thing that you can try to find to channel some good through. And you know. It's not like we're, we're going to play uh, a bit of music as performed by uh, Jerry Lynn Johnson's Black Pearl Chamber Orchestra. But before and it's going to be some Beethoven before we even listen to it. I think that's the other part of it. When we talk about whoever this was who said, well, you know, you don't look like what the audience would expect. That's that's the only thing that you can really get to and you can't take away the racism out of that because it's not like she was going in there trying to completely shift over the the programming itself. Jerry Lynn Johnson has a very strong record of celebrating the canon and celebrating the canon as performed by diverse orchestras, orchestras that look like today, today's uh, cities, today's communities, today's Mm. everything. So it's not like that was what was feared, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. a, a change in approach to that phrase classical music or programming. It was just who she was that didn't sit right with somebody over in that office. How do you, and this is what I wanted to to, to ask you earlier, and then we'll move on. You said, based on this article, it sounds like whoever told her when she auditioned for this job that, oh, well, you're not what the audience expect. Like, I wanted this. This isn't my decision. Mm-hmm. So how would you, maybe maybe I should get my, my drama music back on. How would you handle <laughs> having to be the person to deliver the bad news? There's somebody, you know, you're, you're on, a, on a board or a committee for something. Your favorite pick, you know, is new, fresh, bringing in different ideas. Definitely something that the audience isn't ready to experience, but something that, you know, whoever is the bigger decision maker than you says, uh, I don't know if this is going to be a good idea. The audience doesn't quite expect it. Mm-hmm. How about you go let them know? Uh, <laughs> how would I do it? <laughs> I would come forward and I say, listen, I'm about to lay down some bullshit. I'm going to go through all the platitudes and I'm going to read this statement here. But what I'm really going to tell you is the fact that we have a bunch of people in the front office or the upper office or whatever it is who are afraid of what donor is going to let go? What person is going to stop coming to the shows if we put a person of color up on the podium or if we put a person of color behind the microphone, in front of the camera, whatever the case is? Now, for everybody listening who's going to take what you have just offered and use that, create their own version of that when they're in that situation, what I want all of y'all to know is yes, 
You can do that. I'm not necessarily saying you need to throw down the papers and, and quit your job and next Y and Z. There are many ways to be an ally and a potential accomplice before you offer that speech up to the person bringing different ideas, bringing new ideas, and they have to walk out the door before you offer them that speech. There's a speech that you need to be having with the folks who are above you. Oh, yeah. Of power. Yeah. So what does that conversation look like? How do you how? Because we're talking about changing people as a means of changing systems. Mm -hmm. So how do we do it? How do we traverse? Listen, I'm not trying to cause unnecessary problems, but this is the case. You don't understand that these new ideas may bring in a new audience or, you know, so what, what, what are, what are you, again, as we're talking about turning that rage into something else, as Jerry Lynn Johnson was talking about in the article, how can you change that bad situation into an opportunity to let your opinion be known? What are, do, do you have any ideas or, or, or advice on that speech that needs to be had with the gatekeepers before, you know, those of us who are assigned to go give the bad news have to give the bad news? Sure. I think that it touches on something that we hit on a few opuses ago. People talking about having a tr having trouble getting people of color to apply for right. gigs that they're, you know, and they're saying, well, you know, we're offering this higher salary and, you know, all these, uh, you know, the all the benefits that we get. So the question that becomes... It's clearly not the money. It's not about the money. We there's, just got we just got done listening to hip hop children's music. Black folks have money, right? So <laughs> what I'm what I'm saying we're, is we're that, counting it, right? And what I'm saying is, money is not going to make your culture change, mm. improve, or whatever like that. Mm. And just by throwing a bunch of money at a person of color to get them to come on, do you think you're going to keep them? Mm. If you don't, look at the reason why they're not nibbling on a big, juicy salary. I, I don't want to spend too much time here, but I, 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 but I think this is an interesting conversation because when we talk about throwing money and an issue, you know, that that's easy for me to agree with. At the same time, I talk to a lot of people who say that um, your diversity goals or whatever your anti-racist values of your organization, that has to be met with money. That has to be a line item in the budget, not just some spatial goal that exists, but something that in all of your paperwork and all of your Excel spreadsheets, when it comes to community engagement, we have this sort of budget for digital. We have this sort of budget. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people who say, and I would agree that Diversity, equity, whatever combination of letters people's organizations use, that has to be a budget line item for it to actually turn into something that manifests. Yeah, yeah. I get that. Um, I think it's happening. And uh, like you said, though, it doesn't happen quickly enough. It just, it, it just sounds like you, are, you have experience seeing money being applied to the conversation and that still isn't it. Or if it's only, maybe you're saying if it's only money, that's being thrown at the idea of a lack of diversity and not other things, you're wasting your time. Sure. Um, it's happening in my industry, obviously, but when I first saw that story come out, it was in association with, you know, finance or banking or something mm -hmm. like that. And, you know, uh, we have pl plenty of evidence of uh, black people going off and creating their own things like Jerry Lynn did, you know, g going off and creating the Black Pearl uh, orchestra, the Black Pearl Chamber Orchestra. Um, so anybody who is having trouble filling a spot, 
needs to turn around and look at the culture that is either repelling or not enabling people to feel comfortable to stay more than what a year. I think that's why so many people foreground access. So when we talk about mm. diversity, equity, inclusion, access or, and belonging are, are words that uh, go into the fray as well, because being included in something doesn't mean that you are welcome in that space or that mm-hmm. you are anyway, we, the same conversation, a different day. Yeah. Shout out to Jerry Lynn Johnson, uh, shout out to the Black Pearl Chamber Orchestra and shout out to black women and diverse orchestras honoring the canon. We do a lot of shitting on Beethoven <laughs> off this podcast, and Beethoven wrote some really great music that the Black Pearl Chamber Orchestra performs brilliantly under the baton of Jerry Lynn Johnson. Here's the finale to Beethoven's Second Symphony to get us to our next accidental. You mentioned that Scott Working is here, mm-hmm. and when y'all first came over here before we started recording and all of that, we were comparing Beethoven to Shakespeare. Uh, you know, Scott Scott Working is a, an, an actor and works in that field, and we were talking about the canon as it applies to the theatrical arts. Mm-hmm. I feel like maybe some of my baggage as a musician uh, is what fuels my lack of compromise when it comes to composers like Beethoven. Let's just put them on the shelf for mm-hmm. five seasons. I'm still attracted to that idea. I don't think that there would be a shortage of music. And when I compare that conversation to Shakespeare, I kind of feel like there are certain Shakespeare pieces that I don't feel like get the attention that they deserve. Everybody knows Romeo and Juliet. Uh, people who have studied a little bit of Shakespeare is familiar with the sonnets and maybe a few of the the other plays. But do you think it's fair or 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 a good example as far as cross? Uh, uh, interdisciplinary conversations of the canon and programming. Is is it appropriate to compare Beethoven to Shakespeare, in your opinion? In some ways, yeah, I think it's pretty accurate. Um, I don't know if there's as much vitriol towards Shakespeare as there is. Oh, so you're saying toward... the, the people over in the theatrical arts are asleep. <laughs> oh, we need to wake I, them up. I did not say that. <laughs> no, I did not say that. No, what I'm saying is... Um, it, I don't I don't know it just doesn't feel like it's hit that level of you know, you know the backlash that Beethoven has got and you know Scott Scott will uh back me up here he advocates for new work all the time mm-hmm. and that was the reason why we got together and started the Shelter Belt Theater was so that we could do something that wasn't Shakespeare sure. Ibsen um you know we wanted to do our own locally written and performed stuff well, as long as, you know, if we're going to continue to talk about Beethoven, let's talk about the, the story surrounding Beethoven. You know, what's the black man named Bridgetower, George mm-hmm. Bridgetower? And let's get into, you know, more than just the what, what's always been centered. Let's actually entertain the idea of Beethoven have, having some black ancestry. You know, I think about that with Shakespeare. If we're going to study Shakespeare, let's remember that uh, Life's a Stage and the People Merely Players is an ancient raga and something that he didn't make up. If we talk about Romeo and Juliet, let's remember, you know, the butterfly lovers who existed eons before there was a Shakespeare. Let's put him into context as well and make sure that we aren't centering him in a way that doesn't 
miscontextualize all of the things, all of the cultures that may have and surely did influence him Mm -hmm. and what he allegedly wrote, because there's even... (laughs) conversation right, about right. that anyway this is not a, a theater podcast but you know it, it, it comes to mind <laughs> when i when i think about this and i do think that you can take it to the next step into the future like with music as well because the tropes that were created in that time are still in in plays and movies that are being written now right just as the conventions and techniques that were used in the classical era are still being employed yeah so yeah it's an evolution it's a it's a transition. All, all, all things evolve. All, all good things evolve. All sustainable things evolve. Fingers crossed. All right. Well, I, I, I hate this article. I know. And I hate this story, but I couldn't not talk about it. This gets a huge flat, and I have to give it the problematic alarm as well. I'm reading here from jpost.com, the Jerusalem Post headline, Ohio lawmaker wants to teach the Holocaust, quote, from the perspective of the Nazis. I'm going to read just a little bit. You you heard me right. It says here, State Representative Sarah Fowler Arthur made the comments when explaining to a local news station why she believes that, quote, divisive concepts should be taught from multiple points of view. A Jewish lawmaker in Ohio is deriding legislation to restrict race education in the state schools as the draconian Holocaust censorship bill after one of the bill's Republican sponsors suggested that it is appropriate to teach about the Holocaust from the perspective of the Nazis. This is how I came up on this. I I got up early on Sunday morning, as I tend to, um, scrolling through Twitter, seeing what the headlines are and seeing what's trending. And for some reason, people were arguing whether or not Anne Frank had white privilege. Okay. I dig deeper into what people are talking about. Cause I'm like, what? I just woke up. It's too early. <laughs> what are we doing? Mm-hmm. And I get to, to this, to this article. I'll, I'll address the, the, the Anne Frank thing from, from my perspective here in a few minutes, but what is the goal? What do you think the 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 conservative lawmakers are trying to do in introducing this sort of uh, legislation, the idea that the Holocaust also needs to be taught from the Nazis' point of view? I can say words like fascist. I can say words like racist. I can I can say all of those words that end up getting gaslit and oh we're just being woke and trying to cancel free speech. What do they say the goal is? What 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 is their end game? What is their end game in and and presenting this sort of thing? Is it just team sports at this point? So if you're on the Republican side, you have to push as far right as possible to maintain your position in the party and ultimately your paycheck. Maybe, maybe that's what it is. It's hard for me to think of even the most Trumpy conservative person thinking that this is okay. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm wrong. Yeah. Um, I haven't read the article because like you, I recoil at this sort of thing. My family comes from Ohio. I feel embarrassed to read that. I mean, my family doesn't think that. But at any rate, um, what I think is happening is uh, there was a little bit momentum behind some conservative principles once Roe v. Wade was overturned. And I think that a lot of them are just throwing whatever 
at the wall to see what's going to stick, to see how far they can take it. Because, yeah, I think it's sort of like an indoctrination of a revisionist view, I guess. I don't know. It says here... But there is no other point of view in my mind. It says here, her bill as written would prohibit state teachers from teaching, quote, divisive concepts in nearly identical wording to the other state bills seeking to ban, quote, critical race theory. So even down in Tennessee right now, you can't talk about race. I don't know how you can talk about the history of the United States without talking about that. And it just sounds like this bill is trying to curb what a lot of conservative lawmakers must must interpret as white guilt or white children fe- feeling guilty. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to be able to have the conversation beyond ourselves and think about the systems of racism, the systems of the patriarchy, and what their functions are, and 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 stop trying to personalize everything. You know, I, I mentioned the argument that people were having around Anne Frank's white privilege. I think that is fucking ridiculous statement. Excuse my French, but when we talk about white privilege, we have to understand the origin of whiteness as that thing to delineate one from being black, from from blackness. That is a structure and a system that exists in its own unique way here in the United States. And yes, anti-blackness is a global phenomenon, but when we talk about the privilege of being white, that only works within the context of an anti-black structure, particularly the United States. So when we're talking about 1930s and 1940s Germany, sure, Hitler would have burned the black folks up just as quickly. And they weren't there. And it wasn't a race. It wasn't a, and and let me not get into trouble like Whoopi Goldberg was, the race-based nature of the Holocaust was different than how it is here. The Aryan race was racialized in a way to other Jewish people, to other people who used wheelchairs, who had uh, disabilities, who were gay, all of those things. So whiteness, as it exists in the United States, didn't apply to that. So saying something so ridiculous that Anne Frank had white privilege is only an attempt to derail conversations and to gaslight where that conversation actually applies. You know, I, I I feel like it's it's people trying to say, oh well, you can't say I have white privilege and not say that Anne Frank has white privilege. You know, you you see how they try to twist up the words. I get confused because I don't even know how the I I don't and even understand time, how this idea came up. And and by the time I get done trying to <laughs> explain why it's ridiculous, I have to watch my words because you remember Whoopi Goldberg got in trouble on the View a while ago by saying the Holocaust was not about race. I think. She had some learning to do, and I think to an extent, her words were misconstrued slightly because racialization was different. Mm. It's not that it wasn't based on race. It's that it wasn't based on black-white race because that is a structure that has been used to oppress in our context. There was a different structure that was used in that context, and whiteness wasn't the, the tool against Jewish people in the same way that it is in our context. We have to be really careful about these conversations, but I also think that we have to not be afraid to engage them because it would be so easy for someone to dismiss the idea of white privilege 
because I'm sitting here on my podcast saying that is something that you cannot apply to Anne Frank. I think that's ridiculous to apply to to that story. I even hate that I have to sit here and and talk about it. But I'm Scott, but, but Scott, if we don't talk about it, goddamn, where are we going? You know, they're 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 the the lawmakers are doing what they can to muddy up the conversation in schools. Mm. Trolls on social media are trying to confuse everybody when it comes to terms and and ideas of white supremacy and and white privilege. We can't be afraid to engage these things because the alternative is a lack of understanding and the whole story being twisted in a way that folks like this congressperson in Ohio wants it to be shifted. It's ridiculous. I guess I'm going to leave it there. Um, what because, else is there to say, though? Right. I mean, again, it, it just... it I, it I return to that question. What is the end game? What do people want? I feel like... It's othering. I feel like people don't understand, and as, as you've said here on this podcast before, that you are next. It's mm-hmm. not going to end with the person that you are marginalizing, you know, that woman who is his doing this is paving the way for a society that will un- undo her influence and what she's able to do in national politics because she's a woman, mm-hmm. you know. And we have so many examples of this across history and and a- around the world. <sighs> we got to address these things when we see these conversations that are sticky and very uncomfortable, we have to find a way to address them. Maybe the way that you address it is not responding and getting tied up in a social media thread. Maybe you don't have a podcast or another platform to address these, but maybe you can have this conversation with folks in your family or your friends or other people that you know may need to hear this conversation and may need to have the practice of traversing the conversation so that when it really counts, you're able to explain to someone why it's inappropriate to apply the idea of white supremacy to Jewish people in 1930s and 1940s Germany. I don't even get how the person could make that argument in the first place. I don't get it. They're trolling. They're trolling. They're, they're, They're trying to dismiss the concept of white privilege by applying it where it doesn't apply and where it shouldn't apply. Mm. Goodness gracious. Let's continue to be engaged. Let's hold steadfast and let's make sure that we aren't sweeping these conversations under the rug because conversations that get swept under the rug turn into legislation. And here we are. School children in Ohio are learning about the Holocaust from the Nazi point of view. I would be pissed if I were a parent. I would be at the school cussing somebody out. The principal is not the superintendent. The principal is not the person who writes these uh, 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 curriculums. Mm -hmm. And the principal is someone who has control or should have control over what those school children are taught. So I would go straight to, I wouldn't go to the board of education. I would go to the school and see what my principal is going to do about it and see if this is a person that I can trust with the education of my child, my family members. I think about my sister's kids, my uh, brother Jason, um, uh, they had a, a baby a month ago. I mean, you know, so th- there are l- fresh lives on my mind. Mm. And I can't help but to think about what nonsense they're going to be taught in school. I mean, 
and and the Holocaust is just one example. What are they going to learn about the transatlantic slave trade? Right. I didn't learn a goddamn thing about the Vietnam War, or the Korean War myself. You know, so right. that so that surely won't won't make the textbooks. Northern migration. We 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 got to engage these conversations, and we have to figure out a way to do so. Um, and I'll I'll leave it there for this week. I'll have these articles posted for y'all to dig into and to discuss and um, to to make yourself aware of what's happening in our world. Let's do something before it's too late. I was looking up um, some black Jewish musicians Mm -hmm. because they exist and we need to give them some visibility. And one of the names that popped up was Ben Harper. I'm not so familiar with Ben Harper. What can you offer on this musician? I caught on to him in about 1994 with, uh, it was either his first or his second release. The um, He's very soulful in his style, but his recordings are special because he re- he still records analog like, mm. to tape. So there's a warmth to it that you just can't describe. You just hear it. You just know it when it's played. And uh, he also plays great slide music. He's a favorite at uh, summer festivals. You know, he does. He's played up at Duluth. You know, nice times. Yeah. Any um, any musical suggestions? What should we? Uh, what should we play here? To keep things up, let's go with Into the Colors. When your whole world's shaking From all the risks we have taken Dance with me Dance with me Into the colors of the dust When you have awoken From all the dreams broken Come and dance with me Dance with me Into the colors of the dark You know, one of the reasons why I'm often hesitant to engage some of these conversations because I'm afraid in this audio media sort of art form that we're in, somebody's going to take and cut and paste and all of a sudden... I'm waking up on the internet. Somebody has created a sound file or a soundbite of me saying something ridiculous mm-hmm. that I didn't say. I want to make sure that I'm being very clear right now. The Holocaust was race-based. It was not race-based in the way we in the 21st century in the United States think about race. We cannot apply white privilege to someone like Anne Frank because whiteness, as we understand it and as we apply it to the idea of white supremacy and white privilege, can only exist in the context of whiteness as being something to divide those from being black, to delineate yourself as not black, okay? I talked to so many uh, European people, people from different countries across Europe who come to the United States and talk about their journey of becoming a white person because they don't think of themselves as white. They think of themselves as Swedish Uh or they think of themselves as Welsh or or whatever. So when we're talking about the Holocaust, we're talking about race, but we can't talk about it in the framework of whiteness, you know, and white privilege is certainly not something that can be applied to this story. It's, it's sad. It's sad where the, the conversation, it's like a race to the bottom, you know, and exactly. some of these conversations that people think they're really digging into some things, but don't understand the the foundations of what they're arguing are, are, are just wrong. You know, when it comes to the way that these legislators, you know, but, but, and we'll, we'll be done with this in a second. When it comes to the way these legislators 
are rewriting history and and making these laws to do things like view it from the Nazi point of view. That that's so ridiculous. I feel like that should make it clear why we're doing what we're doing here on this podcast, and why other folks in in Western classical music and the instrumental arts, whatever, are doing what they want to do. Because I feel like that whitewashing of it all has already taken place in classical music. You know, Dark City has already happened right. to us. You know, so we're trying to undo and at the same time engage conversations before we have to undo in other places. We're trying to nip it in the bud. Mm. You know, a hundred years from now, there might be two folks on a podcast or whatever exists in those days arguing the fact that the way that the Holocaust is taught in school is wrong and maybe citing what women like why, uh, this representative in Ohio, how that was the origin of the miseducation of an era and mm, X, Y, and Z, mm -hmm, you know? Mm -hmm. So how about we do our part and make their jobs easier and make sure that we're really paying attention to the way that these things are going and nip some of these conversations in the bud while we can. I think, I think that's a good idea. I'm just going to say that I'm glad that I don't have kids and have to mess with this. <sighs> that's all. We're here in the second movement. Where Scott and I are gonna that went quick. share with y'all some uh, music we've been living with this past week. Get us started. What you got this week, Scott? You are not ready for this track that I brought in today. Okay. When I first heard this, I was going about 60 miles an hour in traffic where I really thought that I was gonna have the color from other people's cars okay. on my bumpers. That's how tight traffic was moving. And I felt like I was going to have to pull over and experience it without having to be concerned about keeping the car on the this road. This piece of music this that piece you got of to music. share. Yeah. And it's not necessarily, it didn't make me sad or melancholy. It reached down inside and made me feel something I didn't understand. Mm. The, the hair on my arms was standing up. My breath was short and quick. And when it got over with, I immediately turned off the radio and went and got on YouTube, and and I think I listened to it probably six times in a row. Wow! The artist's name is Joe Rainey, and he has a re he's a powwow singer, but he has a release that brings in every single track has a driving beat, obviously, and that's pivotal. But there's also some DJ sounds. There's um, noise loops. Um, maybe even every once in a while, you might get a little bit of a sense of EDM, mm. this sort of thing. But in the track Bejiga, it starts with sort of a little bit of that uh, a grumble, noise, uh, white noise machine sort of a thing. And when his voice comes in, I don't know, something inside me switched. Where'd you 
find this? How, how did uh, talk about stumbling upon this? It just came on the radio. Yeah, I was listening to the current. Wow, eighty-nine point three. Shout out to the current. And I mean, it's happening to me right now. I mean, I just I've, I. That feels like a voice from the other side to me. Anything you can share about Joe Rainey as as an artist? So it's incredible stuff. Oh I know gosh. that I know that he's a powwow singer. I know that um, there are recordings of him at powwow competitions. They'll have dance competitions as early as him being eight years old, and I believe he's in his mid twenties. But what an experience! I mean, just to to feel that mixed in with the electronic sound of today, the, you know, that little bit of a DJ, tree, you know, like the, the turntable stop, um, the noise, uh, all of it just mixed together in a way that I, I just, I just wanted to eat it. I wanted mm. to, I wanted to bathe in it. Yeah. Um, that voice, that's, that voice is from somewhere else. We talk about the evolution of music, the evolution of children's music and the, and the other things. Um, I think I was speaking to this last week, but we often, I have even, you know, made the mistake of thinking about certain aspects of our world, particularly indigenous culture, indigenous music as being gone or or from another world or X, Y, and Z. But it's still here. Mm -hmm. These people and these cultures are very much still here. And on top of that, the musicking that they have done and are continuing to do evolves and taps into different sounds and and perspectives. Wow. Yeah. Great, great to great to hear that. And shout out to the current for playing. Indigenous music. That's, he is a, that's incredible. Yeah, he is a, a member of the Red Lake Ojibwe people and raised on the Red Lake Reservation in Minnesota. That's awesome. That's awesome. Shout out to I, Joe Rainey. I couldn't hold on. I couldn't wait till Indigenous Peoples Day, <laughs> you know, to bring that in. I had to bring I, it in now. Yeah, I had to bring it in immediately. And there's, and there's a lesson in that, isn't it? You yeah. know, we talk about you don't have to do X, Y, and Z during Black History Month, where oh, you don't have to yeah. wait until Indigenous Peoples Day to share some Indigenous music, damn it. Joe, I, I just, I just want to say um, what you've done is so amazing, and it, it affected me in a way that I just can't explain. I don't have the words to verbalize it right now. It's just a lot of gushing at this point. Mm -hmm. So check out Joe Rainey. Just spend some time with it in the headphones. Interesting that you brought in indigenous music because I have uh, some Indian-inspired mm -hmm. music to mm -hmm. share this week. So I mentioned the Lakes Area Music Festival in the opening. Uh, uh, among the many things I do for them as uh, artistic advisor is offer lectures. I record lectures for folks to check out before they go to a concert, just so that it's, think of it as extended program notes mm -hmm. with images and sounds and, mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. So for one of their upcoming concerts, I think it's a, a concert on uh, August 3rd. You could go visit their website if I don't have that uh, date right. But uh, one of the pieces on one of their upcoming uh, shows is a work by a composer named Rena Esmail. Uh, Rena is East Indian American and fuses Western classical with Indian classical. One of the points that I made in the lecture 
uh, that I was uh, doing that included her music was that I was very happy that the Lixeria Music Festival is normalizing the phrase Western classical music so that you can actually make sense of sentences like Marina Esmail fuses Western and Indian classical music, you know, mm. that that makes sense. And the more we have these conversations and share different types of classical musics around the world, different sort of musicking, more of those things make sense. And you can understand the broader concept of mm. decolonizing classical music because you can understand that Beethoven and Mozart didn't weren't American and don't have much to do with us. We have classical traditions as well. Anyway, I was so excited by uh, the music, uh, the, the piece of music that's on the upcoming concert by the Lake Area Music Festival is called uh, Teen Murti, or Three Statues. Um, and it's an incredible piece. But the work I want to talk about um, after digging in, because I got curious, I wanted to know about more of her music. I, I came across a piece called Charukeshi Bandish. And it's actually on that Project W album that we've talked about before uh, by the uh, Chicago Symphonietta music mm. uh, by living women composers. Mm -hmm. So this tune, Charukeshi Bandish, is another really incredible example of Rena Fusing that Western and Indian classical sound. There's vocals on this track, and it reinforces not only the, the string orchestra playing and the, and the beauty of Western classical in that way, but that improvisatory, almost ethereal beauty of the Indian classical music. Hmm. Both of those things coming together into an incredible track. So just to break mm. this down slightly, you know, you have the lower strings serving as that uh, pedal, that drone that you often hear in uh, Indian uh, classical music. Of course, the vocals sound so improvisatory and free and maybe outside of the parameters of that 12 note scale that we have. And then you have that beautiful harp reinforcing it in the background. Really incredible track here. Some of the things that yeah. the singing in that, the people who sing in that style, the things they have to train their voice to do, that's Olympic level, man. Yeah. The way that is so hard to sing. I first fell in love with that sort of sound with a woman named Ofra Haza. Have you ever yeah, heard of, of Ofra Haza? Yeah, of course. I'll see. Now I have to pull up. Go ahead. Um, yeah. So you, it, it showed up in a place that I didn't expect, but it certainly made me go on a search for more of her music. Um, she did a track with Sisters of Mercy called Temple of Love. And it was wild. It was like nine minutes long. And her singing in the background of this like industrial song going on, it was fantastic. Absolutely wonderful. Mao Farhaza tracks track is in one of the finest animated films of all time. Have you ever sat down and watched Prince of Egypt? 
is mm, the story of so. uh, is the story of Moses, mm. but it begins with a track called "Deliver Us." So it's you know basically telling the story of how uh, the Pharaoh wanted to kill all of the Hebrew children and X, Y, and Z. Anyway, Ophrahaza tears it up. Let's listen to some of this. I could I could do a whole Prince of Egypt podcast. Listen, I could break this. T- oh my god! Isn't she wonderful? I, I cannot believe you haven't seen that. But I- I- anyway, yes, I'm I'm with you. When we think about really expanding our perspectives on classical music, that means all the way down to literally expanding the way that we think about tuning and notes and the number yeah. of notes there are. Yeah, for goodness sake. Anyway, we've we've chased the rabbit off the path here, but (laughs) shout out to Rena Esmile. Uh, Definitely go check out uh, Shadu Keshi Bondish. If for some strange reason you have not ever seen Prince of Egypt, cut this podcast off and go to HBO Max (laughs) or wherever it lives. Oh my gosh, just so much incredible music um, out there. That wasn't a Disney joint, Prince of Egypt? Pixar, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah, so... Ooh, no, we're going to listen to, we're, we're watching that as soon as we cut off these, this microphone, the opening of that film. Okay. Anyway, but okay. Uh, for right now, we're going to get to our third movement. This week's guest is a, a great friend of mine, an incredible colleague of mine. Her name is Kelly Hall Tompkins. Mm. Uh, Kelly is a violinist. She's a multidisciplinary entrepreneur. Scott, she was the first black woman to uh, play fiddler and filler on the roof. So not on the stage, but the person who is actually playing the the, the violin part yeah. and has to coach the uh, the the actor on stage. Well, she was the first uh, black person to do that. You know, all, all sorts of accolades that I could shout out, but among her uh, many projects, uh, Kelly Hall Tompkins is the founder of Music Kitchen. And it's a, a chamber music series uh, that started in New York and is now expanded that brings chamber music, conversations of chamber music, um, and and everything between into homeless shelters. The stories that Kelly has shared with me have just really broken me down and, and choked me up. It's, we, we talk a lot about music being able to change people's lives. And when we talk about issues like houselessness and homes, homelessness, it's easy to say, oh, well, you need to actually do something real. Get on the streets or X, Y, and Z. Well, Kelly is taking music and taking it into these shelters. And as you'll hear in our conversation, there is real progress. There is real transformation that happens. It's such an important, important, important project. And I was so honored to have Kelly on to talk with me, uh, to phase us into our conversation. I found a clip. There, there's a lot of great uh, Kelly Hall Tompkins music on the internet, but I found a clip of Kelly playing with Mark O'Connor. I think mm-hmm. it really just shows her uh, dynamic nature as a musician. Kelly can play the, the Brahms concertos. She can play the uh, Florence Price concertos. And she can get down with this twangy Appalachian sound and stuff as well. It's so fun to hear. So this is a a, a little bit 
bit of uh, Kelly Hall Tompkins and Mark O'Connor uh, playing through his double violin concerto to get us into my conversation with Kelly Hall Tompkins. And so I, I realized great music has been uh, part of the canon that, that drew me to the violin and that it's still being written. Um, so I'm very much a fan of the canon. I love my bees. You know, I love mm-hmm. my Beethoven, Bach and Brahms and Bartok and all the other composers that don't start with B <laughs> as <laughs> yeah. well. Um, but I think we obviously are learning that we've been a little short-sighted about what canon is or what canon can be. Mm-hmm. And um, there are new old works that we're discovering, and there are brand new works being written today that I think deserve to be elevated to that. So I really love, you know, being a classical musician is, by definition, uh, a curator of hundreds of years of music tradition. I, I am not anyone who needs to say goodbye to any one of those hundreds of years. Not, I mean, I don't, I don't choose to specialize in the very beginning, although I love mm-hmm. Baroque music and I love performance practice, Baroque performance practice, and I don't need to specialize in the very end. But I'm a player that really champions the full span of it, and it's still growing, and that's very exciting. And among the many other evolutions in our field are conversations of diversity and and equity and those things years ago back in uh, 2017 i don't know if you realize you were actually a part of the beginning of my journey in this work specifically in the uh, npr special that we collaborated on years ago um how, do you do you think we've moved in a positive direction since then specifically regarding diversity equity and inclusion i think we've moved in a positive direction um for some very, very sad and tragic reasons. Mm. Um, I think that everything, you know, there were, there were lots of discussions happening, I think probably for two decades and um, very little in the terms of action and change and the unfortunate and tragic murder of George Floyd um, while we were all forced to be at home, uh, you know, and uh, with uh, more focused attention the world, I should say, more focused attention on that issue than they are used to having. Um, I think a lot of organizations took a deep look inward and said, we need to be part of the change here. And it was really exciting to see some of those things happening. In fact, um, I was chosen to be a um, featured, vi- the featured violinist of the, um, uh, the Library of Congress for their McKim Commission annual commission for a violin piece. And um, I chose James Lee to work with. And he asked me, what did I want from a piece? And I described to him the very thing that I'm telling you about, just the idea that uh, we were all forced into this portal of of realization and of awakening through a very, very tragic event. But what ensued was inspiring. I wasn't sure how long it was going to last, but to see people around the world standing up to say that Black Lives Matter, to see that so many arts organizations said, we want to be part of the solution. And we, we identify that there are ways that we've been part of the problem. That was so exciting. So I asked him to write a piece about that. Hmm. And I just premiered that at the Library of Congress um, a couple of weeks ago. But 
Yeah, I think we've we've made progress. I think it's like um, the issue, any issue of, of rights, um, recognizing rights, human rights, women's rights. It's like practicing. You know, there is no stasis. You're either advancing, you're moving forward, or you're regressing, you're losing mm. ground. So I think it's a question of always having to keep moving forward. When you talk about the fact that we were all stuck inside, you, you have me thinking about uh, the fact that when I first, uh, when I performed chamber music for the first time post quarantine, I realized for me personally how taxing that process can be. I, I guess I had forgotten about that level of human interaction. Are, are there refreshed uh, views or renewed views that you've had coming back to the stage post quarantine? Are you realizing how loud? Uh, a crowd applauding is, or have, have there been little things that you're noticing in a renewed way post post quarantine? Um, well, first of all, I I was lucky enough, and and again in a tragic time of loss with the pan pandemic and and all of that to to stay very active. So I was actively performing virtually, like like we all you know had to reinvent. Um, so I was recording a lot of things. I was premiering new pieces. I premiered four new pieces during, oh, wow. the, during the shutdown. And um, I did virtual performances and recitals and all of that stuff. But absolutely, after seeing this terrible thing happen, that our, our field effectively had to shut down, um, being away from that really present aspect of, of interacting with an audience, I thrived in that when I came back. It was, it really was a renewed sense of appreciation of what it means to exchange this art form um, with people who are appreciating it in real time and who are taking it in real time. And yes, applause. I remember when I walked on to play my first concerto, I walked on uh, to the stage and were masked. And I remember, it was, I think it was May of 2021. I walked on and I was like, wow, I remember these dating <laughs> orchestras <laughs> yeah. and then hearing the, the applause from the audience. I think I even uh, involuntarily said out loud applause. I remember that, <laughs> <laughs> but I think I, I think I've returned to the stage with a, an even deeper sense of gratitude to be there. Um, I, I love always loved what I do. And I'm, as I mentioned, I was, um, really happy and, and grateful to be able to thrive as much as possible during the shutdown. But I returned to the stage definitely with a renewed and enhanced sense of gratitude about being able to do what I do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, gratitude is, is definitely, definitely the word there. I want to uh, transition to talk a little bit about uh, Music Kitchen, but just generally speaking, when I think about the issue of houselessness and homelessness, in my lived experience, that issue is very much pronounced in New York City. Um, yes, it exists everywhere. I wonder if living and performing in New York City played a specific role in your decision to address this issue. I think it did. I think um, the circumstances of my life came together in a unique way to inspire me to, uh, to form Music Kitchen. But I do remember when I was in high school, you know, we, I grew up, I was blessed to grow up in an upper middle class family. We, you know, we had everything I needed and most of what I wanted. And, um, but I remember thinking 
um, well, first of all, I remember my stepfather driving me around to other parts of town just to remind me as if mm. I didn't already know other people don't have it this way. And that was something, you know, my grandmother is a, is just a, a humanitarian in every, every cell of her body. And I think I absorbed that from her from a young age. She would feed those experiencing homelessness. And she, in fact, she's 97. She only stopped doing that about eight years ago. Wow. Cooking every other Saturday with other ladies from her church in the park and uh, serving those experiencing homelessness. And she would give clothes also. And, but I remember in high school, I wanted to try to start a program. What I thought I could do from where I was, was to take the restaurant's uh, unused food at the end of every day and find a way to redistribute, redistribute that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember just early on running into the barriers of food safety issues. And so I dropped that. So I think, but I think that kernel was in, was within me, you know, as I went to college and, and, um, as we know, finding our way as a musician takes a lot of energy and, um, but I think I'm proud of, (laughs) 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 well, I'm proud that I started music kitchen before everything in my life was more uh, on solid footing. I, I was, I grew it with, along with my career. And so when I found myself preparing for a, a big solo performance, I like to run through things for colleagues and friends and they weren't available at the time, but I was a volunteer cook at the church shelter. And, um, I was so busy. I was experiencing uh, the death of a dear friend who actually happened to be the pastor of that church. And I was so distracted by that, that I didn't really have time to reasonably coordinate dates with my friends and, and uh, colleagues for playing a run through. So as I was getting closer to the concert days away, I was like, Oh, what am I going to do? So I thought the guys at the shelter, I'll play for them. But it was really, I felt guilty about it. I thought they would hate it. You know, I thought who but professional musicians can stand to hear a violin concerto with no accompaniment. You know, this is, this is awful. I I hate that it's going to, that it's come to this, but I'm just going to do it. And I went there and they loved it. And I was kind of shocked. And they asked me if I would come back the next night. And I said, well, sure, but my concert's just in a few days. I'm going to play the same music. And they said, that's okay. We want to hear it again. And because they also knew the pastor from the church, having been um, patrons of the shelter for on and off for years, they wanted to know if I was playing for the funeral. I said, yes, they, they wanted to hear in a sort of a cathartic moment for all of us, what I was going to play. And I played this Bach um, concerto for them, slow movement. And uh, it was transformative, but I think that alone was not what, what founded Music Kitchen. That was sort of like the, the, the triumvirate of sparks that came mm-hmm. together um, from my life. I, I, you know, as I mentioned, the humanitarian spirit, spirit, I feel like I got from my grandmother and it was there looking for a place to go, you know? Um, and I've always loved chamber music parties. And there was one that I went to annually for a few years down in Baltimore. And we would play there. It would draw around 300 people around 75 of which were players and the rest were spectators. And there would be people that would come from all over the country, literally by plane, train, automobile, bus, <laughs> walk, you know, from next door. And it was members of, of string quartets, of piano trios, of orchestras, freelancers. And somehow the groups that would come together spontaneously at this party were more electric and powerful than, uh, than say a group that had been hired to play for some concert. And something about that sat with me 
And I wanted that for Music Kitchen. So I thought I, I need to create a program where regularly I can bring music to those experiencing homelessness. If they can be so inspired just by violin solo music with no accompaniment, imagine this powerful medium of chamber music and how, how powerful and inspiring that could be. So I thought on that for a better part of a year and the following year, 2005, uh, I founded Music Kitchen Food for the Soul. I am so fascinated with the part of the story that you told about not thinking that the folks would enjoy what you had to offer, but they ended up enjoying it. I've had that experience as well. Again, back to chamber music, friends will say, oh, well, we want to hear you play sometime. And I'm like, well, do they really want to hear me play 20 minutes of Samuel Coleridge Taylor? But, but, but they love it, you know, and just to, you know, make a, a quick, Side note, I wonder what your ideas are on musicians breaking themselves out of that mode of thinking, just assuming that, you know, folks who aren't initiated, as it were, won't enjoy this music that we have to offer. Well, it really wasn't so much about that, although I did. I do think that there are a lot of preconceived notions that I came in with that I have I have learned to evolve and and drop over the years. It really wasn't so much about that. It was that we we understand the full context of how a score should be presented. We know what's missing effectively. Mm-hmm. And we feel that it is incomplete without what is missing. And I was concerned that what was missing was going to draw too much away from the experience. And I didn't realize that what still was there in this, you know, violin concerto was was enough to be um, sweeter, gentler, and, and more inspiring than this, the experience that they've had all day, perhaps all week, perhaps in years. Mm-hmm. And that that's enough. Uh, that's powerful. And I think I have a way with people. I think I have a, a disarming way to present classical music and let them in on the inside. I love talking about it, love talking about the history of it or uh, things, unique things about the pieces. And so that became the, um, you know, the MO and the model for what Music Kitchen is. Yeah. So the passion was always there. And of, of course, the musical ability was always there. I wonder if you can speak to building the infrastructure of the organization that is Music Kitchen. What were the early days like looking for funding or filling out applications or all of those things? Well, fortunately, um, one of our one of my classmates from Eastman School of Music, instead of continuing into the path of full time uh, music, he became an entertainment attorney. So he was one of the most instructive and and helpful people um, to to address all of the, you know, the um, the organizational uh legal aspects of the organization, setting up the corporation, which, you know, we actually existed for five years before we did that. So um, the first thing that I did was uh, reach out to the church where I had played. That was the only shelter I knew. It was a shelter program at a church. So uh, I approached them about this idea and about the program. And I, I asked them if they would be the fiscal sponsor. That effectively just means that they would be the umbrella organization under which we could operate and allow people to send donations and have them be tax deductible in advance of us acquiring our own tax deductible status, nonprofit status. So they graciously did that. And I said, you know, it, um, but don't be offended that I eventually would like to take this organization to have its own 
you know, um, to have its own structure. And they, of course, were very supportive of that. Um, so we, we operated under fiscal sponsorship for the first five years. And then we did have that um, legal assistance to set up the corporation. And that was tremendous. And from the very first day, I mean, I reached out with the idea and very modestly funded, you know, very modest donations, but from around the world, because I knew people in Japan who, um, who had gone back to Japan after being living in New York, who were very inspired by this, and a noted arts philanthropist that I had worked with um, since my days before the New Jersey Symphony, who, who were still tapped into my work, and several grassroots donors who said, yes, we want to, you know, we want to help you launch this thing. And so it's been very exciting to see, you know, the, the next step for Music Kitchen is to, you know, we've grown our grassroots supporting base as we've done more and more concerts and bigger and bigger projects. I would like to get to that next level of support, um, corporate support. Uh, we have, you know, I did um, write and, and receive the first NEA grant that I applied for, which is really exciting. Wow. And we, you know, in the first in the first few years, and some other grants have come through. We had a major New York Times feature article in 2009, which made a lot of you know resources and interest and attention come to us, which was great. Um, and yeah, it, it's been we've we've engaged over 200 artists at this point, <laughs> and uh, photographers and videographers, and um, there's a vast array of people that helped to make this mission possible. So to match the vast array of people involved with Music Kitchen, does the repertoire match that? We were talking about new music versus not so new music earlier. How do you approach what music is performed in these spaces? Well, because of the model of Music Kitchen, which was for the for the majority of the years so far, um, it was based on standard repertoire pieces that can be that are more or less familiar in some places, some cases very familiar for people to rehearse very quickly one time mm. and then perform it at, at a very high level. And so that in and of itself would um, would prevent certain types of contemporary music from being included. However, the other aspect of the programming borrows from programs that are already rehearsed and being presented by other organizations. Most I'm involved in most of the programs. And so if there's something that I'm playing that's really that I think is really interesting and that audiences would enjoy, then I take advantage of that other entity's rehearsal hours mm. budget and present that for music or kitchen. And similarly, when other organizations, other ensembles are playing repertoire that we haven't presented and they're you know, they have uh, other means of rehearsing it uh, to a certain level. They have existing programs. We present those um, ensembles as well. But one of the most exciting things in our history was the commissioning of the Forgotten Voices song cycle, where we just did an, a season and a half of all new music <laughs> for Music Kitchen. And that is since the very beginning of Music Kitchen, I have collected the freeform comments from the listeners. I invited the listeners to, you know, take a colored note card and if they feel like it, just write how the music made them feel. And um, it's been fascinating to see how some people say, okay, no, thanks, I'm good. But then after hearing the performance, they're like, oh, can I have a card? I'd like to write something. <laughs> and really the only purpose of that from my standpoint was to share that with our 
supporters to let them know since the concerts are essentially private they're behind closed doors they're not open to the public they're in the cloistered environment of a shelter i wanted to let our donors know yes there are people listening and here's how they feel about it and they really do love this here's how, what they say but then as we were approaching our 15th anniversary i just had the light bulb moment where i i knew what i wanted to do with those um with some of those cards so i invited 15 award-winning composers to choose among that feedback, we have we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of of those uh, feedback cards. But I invited 15 award-winning composers to choose among those and to set, you know, their choice into a song that would become part of the composite song cycle. Forgotten voices, each song three to five minutes. So we, I had a, the other. That's an already historic idea because we typically marry the high art of music composition with the high art of poetry by celebrated mm. writers. But the other aspect of what was historic about that is that I set out to premiere these pieces um, by coveted award-winning composers first for the shelter clients. So starting in January of 2019, we premiered one song every month mm. in the shelters and fortunately started in January 2019, 15 songs for 15 months. So we got through 14 of 15 live performances before the pandemic hit and the right. 15th one we premiered virtually. So it's, it's an entirely new reason for Music Kitchen to exist. We've basically expanded our profile um, on entirely new music that I very much think deserves to be part of the canon. I hope that it will you know, widen the conversation about what classical music is and what it can do and how relevant it is in our society, in our lives. And um, it's, I think it's a great, um, I can't imagine the cycle without any one of the songs. They really do, they have taken on a life of their own as a group. You know, they're wonderful individual pieces, but um, really since I invited people to write the songs under this, this idea, they have they have really come together to be a greater than the sum of the parts mm. work, and I'm very excited um, for us to champion to continue championing it beyond Carnegie Hall world premiere. I wonder how you take care of you in this work. It, it it must be emotionally taxing to constantly face this issue that we have yet to fix as a as a country, the issue of homelessness. Yeah, it's interesting you should say that because I I am one of those sort of tireless people that works, you know, because I love what I do. I I can do I can do a lot and not really it doesn't phase me, but it's interesting how music kitchen concerts, you know, we are not quite back to playing them in person, but when I've played music kitchen concerts, it is the most exhausting thing of anything I do. <laughs> it's because I feel like, and I even wrote about this, it's probably because of my multiple points of focus. You know, I feel like I have a thousand pairs of eyes. You know, I'm watching the listeners and making sure they're engaged. I'm watching the artists and if, you know, to see that they're okay. And I'm, I'm sort of taking in all this bits of information and it's, it's far more interactive than your average classical music concert. So that means that I have to have the data and react to it constantly for the um so i i thrive on it but it does it is exhausting and i find that i'm i'm just more after a music kitchen concert i'm i'm more thoroughly drained and then and then i'm invigorated again you know when i see this incredible reaction um to people you know from people who either have 
grown up with classical music and perhaps they were donors and supporters and in a previous iteration or a previous chapter of their lives, or perhaps they've never heard a live note of music ever in their lives and we just gave it to them for the first time. And I go home and I read these cards and I'm, I'm rejuvenated and inspired all over again. <laughs> Is there a card or, a, or an interaction that uh, sticks out in your mind? Have, have you met, I, I, maybe you were referencing it there, but I wonder if you've met a musician in, in this work, someone whose life went a different way, but previously this was a career path they sought out for themselves. There was, in fact, in our LA concerts, um, the first time we played at a at the I think it's the Downtown Women's Center. There is a woman there, uh, and this is the these are the concerts that I play with Glenn Dictro and his wife Karen Dreyfus. And there's a woman there who just her eyes were as wide as saucers, and she came closer to us. She came and sat right you know, right underneath us and was looking from, from musician to musician while we were playing. And I think it was not until after the performance that I heard from one of the shelter administrators, she's a pianist. She had lost all of her family in a fire. All of her, she lost all, I, she had several children. She lost all but one and um, her parents in this house fire. And she has never been the same. She lives on she was at the time living on the street they could not get her to come inside um and she would occasionally come in for meals but she they couldn't get her to stay to sleep in a bed there and so she happened to be there the day of our concert and um we do the concerts in los angeles on an annual basis several concerts in a row annually and so when we came back the next year she heard about the concert happening. So she came back to the shelter wow. just for our concert. And the following cycle, when we came back, we, we heard that she was in her own apartment again. Um, I know that it was a really, I, I don't know, I, I'll never know exactly what impact the concerts had, but I know that they were very powerful for her. Um, there are other people in that, in the shelters in LA. One administrator told us that, um, a gentleman that they had been trying to get into substance abuse programs unsuccessfully for a long time said after our concert, that's inspired me to do it. Now I want to do it. And so he enrolled. Um, there's a woman here in New York that was homeless at the time and is featured in our film actually, who said when we premiered the James Lee song from Forgotten Voices alongside, I think we played Ravel, yeah, Ravel, String Quartet, and the James Lee. But she said about the James Lee song, that piece was like a warm embrace. And at the end of the concert, she said, I am forever changed because you musicians came here. And I will never forget this day. Gives me gives me chills every time I think of it. I, I'm, I'm getting choked up hearing you <laughs> tell these stories. It, it's so easy for a lot of people to discount the value of this music because it seems upper crust, but I mean, you you are speaking to hard evidence that shows this art form can transform people's lives. I, I hope these stories are in all of your grant applications. Yes, they are <laughs> <laughs> because they're they're real and there there's so many of them and they it, it's not shelter, it's not food and water, but it's something very very close to. Um, to our necessities as human beings. 
you've mentioned New York. Uh, you've just told the story about Los Angeles. Are there other cities or communities on your radar in the future? Well, actually, through my solo career, we have had a music kitchen presence in a, quite a number of cities because there are orchestras when I go to play a concerto that rather than having, you know, they always want a community element of some sort. And for most artists, that takes the form of a masterclass or a presence in a school. But for many of the presenters that I work with, they uh, really appreciate and admire the music kitchen aspect of my background. I tried to keep them separate when I started, but, but I've stopped doing that because people know that's who I am. So a lot of the presenters um, will invite me to do a music kitchen concert in their community. And, and oftentimes, as I mentioned, I'm, I have a way with people and I present it in a certain way. And um, it's their, often their first opportunity to reach that part of their community. So in that vein, I've played a concert in Paris, France, uh, in Wichita, Kansas, in Nashua, New Hampshire, uh, as artist in residence with the Cincinnati Symphony in Cincinnati, in Oakland, California, and Rochester, New York, as part of the Gateways Festival. Mm -hmm. So a lot of different cities um, around the country. I, I, I never want to have a presence in more cities than we can reach the way that I like to reach people. Mm. So that's a re really important to me. Even in New York, I don't want to reach more shelters than we can really develop a relationship with. Um, so there is, there is a great aspect of wide reach, but it, I want it to continue to be um, really meaningful, high artistic level reach. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to uh, look at this issue a little more broadly. So be, being hyper-focused personally with the issue of race and racism in orchestral music has help me understand some of the broader issues even beyond uh, the the issues specifically as it relates to orchestras and, and Western classical music. I wonder if your experience with Music Kitchen has um, enlightened you on some of the broader issues connected with homelessness and houselessness. What what are the big things that we're dealing with societally in the in in this conversation of homelessness from your perspective? Well one of the thing one of the reasons uh, well, for, I would just say with Forgotten Voices, I had originally conceived of one composer to write several songs, but then I evolved to the idea of having 15 composers, one for every one of Music Kitchen's 15 years at the time. And I, I did that because one of the major ideas that I've realized is that homelessness has no race, mm. it has no gender, it has no age. Um, and I would not want to paint homelessness with a single brush because it would be inaccurate. So it affects everyone of all, all demographics, um, all demographics, racially, you know, uh, sexual orientation. Right. And, and that taps into the next issue, which is, I think that we as a society need to learn to embrace and provide a soft landing for those experiencing homelessness, because it's not a problem that will ever be fixed. Hmm. And what I mean by that is there are so many causes and they're not economic, they're not necessarily economic. There's so many causes for somebody to experience homelessness at a given time. Um, some, uh, oftentimes I've met people for whom, um, people who have had a tremendous loss that they couldn't like the, like the pianist that I mentioned, 
I don't think there was any economic reason for her to, that I'm aware of. I mean, there may have been, but as far as I know, she had a tremendous trauma. And I don't know if part of that was fear of going inside buildings. I don't know, but she could not be co- co- convinced to go inside and, and reside in a, in a shelter environment. Um, I know. So, and then sometimes those, those emotionally traumatic causes can interface with economic causes. And that's where our society falls short. Like for example, I met a woman who's also featured in our film who, um, her wife between her and her wife, they lost seven family members in a short period of time. And it was so hard on her wife that she left. She left her with a mortgage that was a two person mortgage and she left her alone to cover a mortgage that, that she was unable to pay for. And the interesting thing about that client is that she said she had wealthy family members. So this is really not about, um, you know, she had a, a, an aunt who owned um, a daycare, you know, several daycare centers. And um, a, I think a, a nephew or a, a cousin that was a, a well-known dancer in a famous dance company touring the world. And she seems like a very articulate, educated, you know, aware person, but this thing happened and then economics sort of came in and she fell through the cracks and couldn't stay afloat. So, um, you know, and then there are other more expected reasons that we sometimes think of there's substance abuse. Hmm. Um, but somebody who abuses substances still needs to be able to have a place to live and Right. And to be able to find a path to get back on their feet. Um, I don't know that any of those things that I've mentioned so far are ever going to stop happening. The question is, what do we do as a society? Everybody has a different way of dealing with things. And some sometimes for a short time, it's not to be able to deal with it at all. And I think that we as a society have to decide that that we have to have the humanity and the compassion to provide a soft landing and and assistance to help people to get back to where everybody wants to be. That's a very important point. I, I appreciate your framing it um, in in that way, and of course appreciate all of the incredible work that Music Kitchen is doing. I'm I'm, I'm sitting here close to tears just listening uh-huh. to all of these stories and just trying to you know internalize the impact that this is really having on on individuals. How how can people learn more about Music Kitchen? How can they support Music Kitchen? Yes, please go to musickitchennyc.org to learn more about Music Kitchen. And there you can also learn the ways of support. We can accept donations on PayPal, Zelle, or check through the mail. And our address is listed there. That's musickitchennyc.org. We are now in our 17th year and uh, very exciting. And I just wanted to, before we close the topic of Music Kitchen, at the... um, the premiere of Forgotten Voices, we also debuted a new film, a short film that I've referenced a couple of times. And um, the song the song cycle is, of course, not allowing people to, to see the contributors to that song cycle. And in most cases, they were anonymous. Uh, the comments are written anonymously. So we wanted to interview some of our clients. And uh, our new film, Face to Face, Forgotten Voices Heard, is starting to really make strides in film festivals all over the world. Um, We have received best human rights film. 
um, at the multidimensional film festival. And so I'm about to um, send out a newsletter that newsletter that the film will be viewable today for the next five days. And we've received an honorable mention at the Orlando International Film Festival, finalist, um, semi-finalist at the Stockholm, Sweden Film Festival, and semi-finalist in, um, I think, in uh, Abruzzi, Italy, for the Golden Short Festival, and also in Amsterdam. So it's a very exciting time for Music Kitchen, and, and thank you very much for allowing me that additional plug. <laughs> oh, no, it's, it's my pleasure. So I, I want to ask before we close, you know, there, there are people listening right now who have been conditioned to sort of turn on their tunnel vision when they're walking down the sidewalk and, and, and see someone experiencing homelessness or, or houselessness. I wonder if you have any words to offer to those folks toward shifting that narrative. Well, I mean, we we all, including myself, are, are faced with a conundrum of, of, you know, when we're out in the world, we have to take care of our um, personal safety and, um, you know, just everything relating to that. But I would say that it's important that we remember to have compassion for people and their circumstances. We just don't know. We just don't know. Um, I have, um, a, a bag that I actually received. Sometimes I, I give extra things that I have. Like you go to the dentist and you get that little bag of toothpaste and the mm-hmm. little tooth, like you already have toothpaste at home. You already have a toothbrush, toothbrush. So usually just, you know, stick that in a drawer somewhere, but I've made a point of now having that handy so that I can offer it to people who need it. And I, first time I did that, I wasn't quite sure if somebody would you know, appreciate that. But a guy said, Oh, thank you so much. Things like that, I think make a difference. So I think having compassion, figuring out how to make a difference, how to get involved. Um, remember policy, you know, every time you hear about policy in your area, um, be sure to be an advocate for the things that are, that are compassionate and that allow, allow funding to be, um, you know, dispersed in a way that keeps these programs alive, that keeps them central. Um, I know in New York City, we had uh, a, a mayoral administration that wanted to push all the shelter services to, to, the, ne- to the nether regions, and that mm-hmm. made it difficult for Music Kitchen to operate during those times. But I would just say, remember policy. And when you think about a, a pandemic, when, when everybody is supposed to shelter in place to stay at home, what does that mean for people who don't have a home? Mm-hmm. So I would say be generous with your dollars, be generous with your compassion, um, and yeah, be part of a solution in some way. The encore reminds me of a day of Get it to one spell.
tune there called Hooking In by Kamala Shankaram, another um, Indian-American composer and another mm. former Triloquy guest. So shout out cool. to uh, uh, Kamala. Uh, that tune, Hooking In, uh, was a part of the virtual premiere behind the scenes from the Music Kitchen Food for the Soul Forgotten Voices uh, song cycle. So an example, a little uh, excerpt there of, of one of those songs. We have to learn how to utilize our gifts, our talents, and our efforts to really actually engage people. And and that's what um, Music Kitchen does for so many people. So thanks again to Kelly for joining me this week on Triloquy. Do you have any experience uh, volunteering at uh, soup kitchens or homeless shelters or anything like that? No, I don't. Um, There's been plenty of times where I had a holiday free Mm -hmm. and I wasn't going to travel and I thought, I'll go volunteer somewhere. Turns out, those are the days that everybody wants to go volunteer. Right. right. I mean, wouldn't you right. think it'd be the opposite? Right. I, I, I have volunteered at many shelters, so I understand oh, I mean. that as a as a reality. I remember the first time I went to volunteer um, at a shelter. I was in high school, maybe in 10th or 11th grade. I, I, I wasn't even driving yet. My, my friend had to drive. Um, and I remember the person who organized it was like, okay, I know that y'all came here to, you know, uh, serve food or whatever, but we actually have that covered. So how about y'all actually go out there and engage some of these folks in conversation? So I went out and um, sat down at a table and, you know, this was 20 years ago. Uh, I I wish I could remember the man's name, but I sat down and I wasn't sure what exactly to talk about. You know, Mm -hmm. I, I ignorantly in my child mind figured because someone is homeless means that they must not be up on current events or or all of those sorts of things. And as soon as I sat down, he was like, "Oh, well, hey, young man, do you, have have you heard of a, a, a artist named Fifty Cent? I really appreciate some of his music, and uh, you know, and so really? this is this man trying to engage me, <laughs> and I'm sitting there wondering how I can talk to them. Anyway, I, I think about that right now because we have to do everything we can to lead with that compassion and understand that these are people and mm-hmm. these are people who live in the same world as as we do, which means we have the ability to really engage them and, and do something for their lives. Kelly has done a lot and is continuing to do something to engage uh, people who, who are who are under that circumstance. You know, we can talk a long time about the villainization of homeless people and thinking that, oh, well, they're on drugs or they did something wrong or X, Y, and Z, but it's a circumstance. And we can talk about it from many different areas. As Kelly laid out, it's not always economics. You know, there are people who go through certain traumas sure. that lead them uh, to, to to those realities. We can't afford, we can't even uh, forget bad luck. Exactly. A couple turns of bad luck, I'll, I'd be out in the street. I mean, even if just, if we want to reduce it strictly to the, the economic part of the conversation, we all have enough, a number of paychecks. Mm-hmm. But before we out of luck, right. you know, especially folks who rely on certain structures for that paycheck, you know, so. Yeah. Anyway, um, in, in a world of so many challenges and so many things to make you sigh and, and want to feel hopeless, it's so encouraging to hear from folks like Kelly and to get to um, engage uh, Music Kitchen and, 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 the, and the important work that they're doing. All right, we're going to get into the fourth movement. We're going to spend this fourth movement addressing some social media things. Um, and I'm going to give you know, a special shout out to, again, one of my favorite bands, Flutronics. Um, it'll make sense when we when we get there but to get us into this fourth movement i'd like to share a performance of candy candy one of those old school classic tracks by flutronics let's take a listen to a little bit of it here (laughs) 
Electronics performing their arrangement there of Candy Candy, a tune by Kyari Pamyu Pamyu. I think, oh, it says here, yeah, Kyari Pamyu Pamyu. I'm trying to practice my my hiragana, but... Um, hey, good for you. Yeah. Um, a vibe. It's a vibe. When you hear that music, surely you hear the future. You hear where we can take the conversation of classical music classical programming, classical radio. That's a track that I would love to mm. to switch on to the, the radio and hear. So when I hear, and I've seen Flutronics in, in concert m- many times at this point. So when I see what they are doing with music and where they're pushing the genre, that means I can trust them. And I take what they say when it comes to the conversations around the genre very, very seriously. I was feeling away earlier this week and I went to social media. Long story short, I'm not going to read my whole post and all these hundreds of comments or whatever, but long story short, I was hearing from friends about how they are people of color and how they're doing everything they can to switch up things from the inside. And when it comes time to actually offer some power to um, hire on a full-time basis, to um, elevate certain positions, to actually be able to influence structures and systems within organizations, that's where the buck stops and they're either laid off, uh, they aren't offered jobs. And it, it makes it, it, it makes me angry. It makes me upset to think about the idea of these organizations, A, complaining about things like, where's the talent? Or we're doing our best, but it's hard to find uh, diverse X, Y, and Z. No matter how much we want to pay, nobody wants to apply. Folks having the opportunity to do so, to actually speak to and act on what they're alleging and not taking on that opportunity. I hesitated to really put out my true feeling and anger because I got to feeling like, well, you know, maybe leading with those angry emotions isn't always the the most viable way forward or people can't actually hear you. So that's the conversation that I was engaging on social media. I want to shout out uh, Brittany McNeil, a two-time Triloquy guest. She actually challenged me um, to think about those angry feelings, those what I called reactionary feelings, to not reduce them, to not diminish them, and actually validate those feelings. Those feelings come from a place, and it's okay to act on those feelings. What I want to ask you on that conversation as we talk about the frustrations that surround equity work, especially in the arts, there are people who say, well, honey attracts more flies than vinegar, mm-hmm. and then there is the feeling and emotion behind it all. Allison Loggins Hull of Flutronics was also among the many people engaging the conversation. And she said that oftentimes moving forward means moving on. Right. So with those two ideas in mind, the idea of validating um, emotional responses to the frustrations behind change-making work in the arts next to, well, they're not serving love here. Let me get up from the table and build my own. What are your what are your ideas? Do you feel like those angry feelings are valuable? How do you engage your most frustrating moments when you you have to come up on these conversations? People yeah. making excuses for the change that they have the opportunity to make. I encourage everyone to channel whatever emotion they have. I'm not going to tell them what emotion to have. If you're angry, channel that. If 
you feel despondent because you're not seeing the change. Channel that. You know, go back to what Jerry Lynn Jan- Johnson said. Uh, any strong emotion, if it's channeled correctly, can be used in a positive way or a way for change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That would be, you know, I'm I'm not going to tell anybody not to be angry, broken up, whatever about whatever they're feeling. Just channel it. So as we channel, did I answer your question? Yes. I'm sorry. So as we channel that energy in every way we can, for some people, it looks like channeling that into building something more. I am fully confident in my ability to build and to build something different, to partner with other folks at w- whatever you want to say, you know, work outside of the institutional structures. And I don't like the idea of predominantly white organizations just sitting over there in their corner, sitting pretty and just being comfortable because we're building our own things. I feel like I need to go disrupt that. I don't want that to exist. Is that my baggage? Do you interpret that as vengeance? I'm I'm just trying to explore some of these modes of thinking and, so the, and me, the way that I move forward. Let me see if I'm understanding you correctly. You're talking about a predominantly white organization over here saying, oh, that group of black people is making their own thing, so now we don't have to address right. it. Right. That's what you're saying. And and I want- and 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 within that, I'm saying no. They're building their own thing, but y'all need to change this shit as well. Yeah. And as long as it exists like this, I'm going to be here fighting against it. I, so I some- think that that's something that some organizations are leaning on. I really do. So what the feelings that I get, and the reason why I tend to sometimes second guess my well, not I won't say second guess myself, but just the thought train that I go down is wow, okay, well. All of these people are building their own thing. They have just completely divested. And I'm sitting here beating the dead horse, so to speak, getting these institutions to change. I just don't like the idea of organizations existing and not addressing the world, not being culturally competent. Mm -hmm. I understand that there's an audience for everything. I understand that there are organizations, if they play nothing but the uh, Baroque beepy boopy music, as you said, there there is an audience for that. And I'm sorry, y'all also have to address the diverse world that we live in and not create this bubble, this white bubble around yourself and exist as you have been for all of these decades. Sometimes I feel like that is interpreted as vengeance or trying to get back or even um, um, being on the offense when it comes to, sure. to certain conversations. Sure. But I just don't think it's fair for for organizations to get to exist like that. So as people are building their own things, I feel like it's my job and people like me, their job to shake that up mm. as well. Mm. I agree with you. That's your job. <laughs> <laughs> so 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 you so you mean to say in your opinion, you think your energy will be focused on supporting the building of the new table than trying to change what's on the the old traditional table. I mean, what 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 side do you feel more inclined to channel your energy toward? Um, I feel like I need to be over at the PWI trying to get it lined up. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I, I feel like um, that's where I'm best suited. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's what it boils down to. We have to figure out where we're best suited mm. and operate there. Well, I just I feel like I'm 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 best suited to keep stirring the pot. I'm just sorry. <laughs> <laughs>
And like I said on social You're media, sorry. I lead with with compassion and grace. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm not here to just completely cuss everybody out. Not in the first conversation anyway. I'm not even here to make folks feel guilty necessarily in the in the first or second or third conversation. But there has to be an addressing of all spaces. And as I affirm and, you know, again, shout out to Allison Loggins Hole. I love the idea of moving forward and moving on. And y'all not just going to be able be over here centering Beethoven and Schubert and doing all this and and thinking it's willy nilly. As long as I'm here, I feel like I have to press back against that. To close us here, I want to give a shout out to the other half of Flutronics, Natalie Joachim, incredible flutist, uh, and incredible um, vocalist. Before I do this, I want to offer some context. So I want to give a shout out to Crystal and Kid Fury from the Reed podcast, a podcast that has um, inspired much of Triloquy. I know Katie and Delaney over at Classically Black have been deeply inspired by the Reed. It's just one of those foundational black pieces of podcast media that have inspired so many people. I just want to make sure that I'm giving them their flowers and shouting them out. A part of their show, <laughs> when, when it comes time for them to say what they need to say, talk a little bit of shit. They um, every now and again, they have read correspondences from other folks and they call it pass the read. Mm. And I want to do a little bit of that today. Natalie Joachim from Flutronics posted a thread so poignant and so important on Twitter that I'm going to sit here and read the whole thing before we wrap up today. This is from uh, Natalie Joachim's Twitter. She says, I promise you this. Composers of color are subjected to some of the most patronizing, disrespectful, and unprofessional exchanges with commissioners, institutions, and ensembles, and are expected to handle each one with grace and humility. It is utterly exhausting. I have to steady myself to navigate so many conversations that are deeply emotionally taxing and draining, all while exuding the utmost professionalism and restraint, because heaven forbid I heighten awareness of my blackness through provoked anger. I genuinely believe that the vast majority of offenders are fully unaware that these encounters, which are almost always brought on by a lack of preparedness, awareness, evolution, tact, etc. on their part, tend to disrupt not just a moment, but more often days or weeks for us. They distract us from creative work, make us question our sanity, test our will to engage, and most infuriatingly force us to take on emotional labor that quite simply is not ours to shoulder. I do not see my white colleagues experiencing this. In fact, many of them condone it. Often, their own engagement with offenders perpetuates the conditions that bring these encounters our way. And in seeking support from white colleagues, I'm frequently told how well-meaning, wonderful, kind, progressive the offender is. This is so unhelpful and actually harmful. I would truly love it if my artistic practice afforded me a singular space in this world in which a white person could not just casually up in my life that make me feel crazy for it while being asked to make them feel okay through it. But that just doesn't seem to be possible. If you are an artist of color reading this, please know that you are not alone. And if you are not an artist of color reading this, do us all a favor. And at the very least, think more than twice before you decide to come to us with some kind of mess, please. I needed to read that especially considering the conversation that I've been having myself with this week. You know, what is the difference between leading with my immediate emotional response and a more graceful, tactful, as Natalie uh, Joachim lays out there? I read that here just to affirm not only Natalie, but to everyone listening to this. I have decided to take 
an approach that many people would define as a little bit softer. That is not to diminish any reaction the way anyone wants to engage this conversation. If you want to lead with anger, lead with anger. If you want to lead with compassion, lead with compassion. But let's act, let's lead, let's move. Thank you to Flutronics for not only your music, but for your poignant words and your outspoken advocacy in the fight for decolonizing classical music. Thank you everyone for listening this week. We'll see you next week.